This podcast is presented by SoCalREN, the Southern California Regional Energy Network. We're a collection of local governments that come together to promote energy efficiency programs for residents, businesses, and public agencies. Welcome to Re-Energizing Communities, your connection to conversations about energy efficiency that can help you influence change at home, at work, and in your community. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, our host, Julie Castro, welcomes Alvaro Sanchez, Vice President of Policy for the Greenlining Institute, an organization committed to building a just economy that is inclusive, cooperative, sustainable, participatory, fair, and healthy. In today's episode, he discusses environmental justice for communities of color across Southern California. Let's listen in. Alvaro, you have a very impressive bio. You were named one of Grist's 50 fixers. You and the Greenlining Institute were instrumental in ensuring that a significant portion of California's climate investment dollars target communities of color, low-income communities, and historically pollution-burdened communities. How did you find yourself in this field? I started my career in affordable housing organizing in San Francisco, where I was organizing mostly immigrant mothers to advocate for more affordable housing construction in the city. Organizing is an extremely hard thing to do, and it sometimes gets undervalued as a skill set, but you're literally convincing everyday people to do something that they are not getting paid to do, which is to be an advocate for their own community and their own future. I wasn't the best at doing that kind of work, but I was really interested in planning and city development and economic development. So I pursued a planning degree, and I thought that I would essentially graduate from planning school and pursue an economic development future or real estate development, which I did for a number of years. But ultimately, I ended up realizing that that wasn't my passion. found myself more passionate about thinking about how to generally improve people's lives through more systemic changes, which brought me to policy work. The sustainability connection really just came from taking a chance on a job that I thought I was not qualified to do. Green for All was looking for an advocate to lead their stormwater and green infrastructure national campaign work. I applied to this job knowing that I didn't have a background in water, didn't have a background in sustainability, but thought that I could contribute something to their organization, bringing in an economic development strategy and a history of doing a lot of social justice work. It was there that I really understood the magnitude of opportunity that exists in needing to basically do everything that we have to do to address the climate crisis and what that means for our economy and our society. If we are able to build in good public policy that ensures that as we make that transition, we create pathways out of poverty for people that have been struggling. That's where I found my passion. Fighting this crisis that we have with climate is a great opportunity to try to advance social and racial equity policy that will ultimately produce not only a better planet, but perhaps a better economic system and a more just future. The Greenlining Institute has been around for over 25 years, creating equitable opportunities for communities of color all over the country. Can you give us an overview of the Greenlining Institute's work? Greenlining, our vision is a future where communities of color can build wealth, live in healthy places filled with economic opportunity, and are ready to meet the challenges posed by climate change. 
We chose that language very intentionally because as we've seen the development of our work, we've begun to clearly understand that everything is connected to everything else. The Green Learning Institute started as a project of community-based leaders who wanted the financial institutions that they were working with to understand that redlining, while it was a thing of the past, quote unquote, it was something that was still impacted people today. Redlining was a practice, it was a law that basically prohibited people of color from gaining access to resources to be able to purchase homes and literally drew red lines around neighborhoods that the federal government aligned with the real estate industry made decisions that those neighborhoods were not appropriate for making home loans and other kind of financial products available. The number one reason why those neighborhoods had red lines around them was because of the presence of people of color. This was something that was instituted all over the country, and redlining has impacts on how people are living today. Redlining locked poverty and pollution into many of these neighborhoods. Freeways were used as a way to essentially split redlined communities versus other communities that were wealthier and wider. It's still present, but just in more submersive ways, such as algorithms making decisions about where people can access home lending and an algorithm deciding that there are certain neighborhoods that are less profitable to make loans to. So then still people of color are not able to gain access to home ownership. Greenlining is a response to all of that, to that legacy of injustice and ensuring that our financial institutions are able to actually make products and resources available to communities of color so that they have an opportunity to build intergenerational wealth. From the founding of the organization on financial services institutions, we've developed into an organization that works on economic issues, meaning banking issues, technology issues, small business issues, and housing issues, climate issues, which means climate adaptation and resilience, building and vehicle electrification, energy decarbonization, and climate mitigation. Now we also work on transformative communities issues, which means capacity building and technical assistance resources to people that are trying to make changes in these neighborhoods themselves, and also systems change work that basically is our long-term vision for what the future economic system should look like. Wrapped up in all of this, we focused in a lot on leadership development. Greenlining has a leadership academy that up to this point has trained over a thousand racial equity advocates that work in philanthropy and government and private business and nonprofits. This leadership academy is one of the highlights of the organization because they've been able to train people who are making a real difference in carrying on the legacy of greenlining wherever they work. Can you tell us what the Greenlining Institute is focusing on in terms of transitioning away from those fossil fuel industries and shifting toward clean energy that's affordable for the communities nearby? The first thing that we are actively doing is ensuring that as we are transitioning towards a clean energy future, we leverage that opportunity to be able to create real life benefits for the people that are living in those communities now and ensuring that those communities that have been most impacted are able to make the full transition towards a clean energy future. A lot of the work that we do is focused here in California, 
And as California has these high ambitions to be not only a national leader on climate action, but an international leader on climate action, that we make sure that racial equity is a core part of how we are doing that work in California. A couple of laws that we helped to pass in California, which direct a minimum of 35% of California's climate investment dollars to disadvantaged communities as defined by the state ensuring that those communities are receiving resources to be able to clean up and improve their communities. Up to now, the state has reports that 50% of their revenue has been implemented in those communities, totaling over a billion dollars worth of investment over the last eight years. That's an important way to make sure that the resources are being available to make these kinds of transition. And what those resources are going for are both large-scale capital investments like affordable housing development near transit or improved transit in those communities, but also towards programs that allow low-income folks to gain access to clean energy technology like electric vehicles, like rooftop solar, like energy efficiency, and by bringing down the cost of those resources to those communities. And also that these resources are being spent in ways that create other economic opportunities like good quality jobs or small business contracting opportunities in those communities, which is a lot of the policy that's been built into these programs over time. That's one of the big ways that greenlining has been able to make this clean energy transition one that's beneficial to the most impacted communities. How is the Greenlining Institute working to advance racial equity? One of the things that greenlining has really done has been to advance racial equity practices in the way that government, philanthropy, and the private sector are developing these policies and implementing them. And what that means is taking the time to figure out how do we change the overall approach around decision-making, around planning, around implementation for these policies so that we make sure that the practice of equity is one that is embedded in the way that we do things moving forward. So that it doesn't become a one-off commitment or a one-off practice, but instead it's something that becomes institutionalized and we're able to rely on for the long term. Because addressing climate change and racial equity is going to require a long-term commitment to changing our practices. There is no way that we can achieve the kind of future that we want to get to if our practices do not evolve and ensure that the people who have had the least amount of political capital and resources are better able to engage in these approaches moving forward. That's one of the reasons why we are where we're at is because those folks have basically been left out of the conversation. And we want to make sure that moving forward, our policies, our programs, our resources are not only bringing in those people with less political capital into the conversation, but having them be meaningful partners in the way that we move this work forward. Obviously, making this transition towards the clean energy economy requires a lot of regulation to direct producers of emissions, whether that's the fossil fuel industry or whether that's other kinds of industry players, making sure that we speed up their decarbonization as quickly as possible. And that as we do that work, we keep a close eye on what's going to make it harder for people to live their lives today. That means making sure that folks are not being overburdened by having to pay for the transition themselves or making sure that folks are not overburdened by needing to basically 
incubate or keep fossil fuel industries up and running in their communities while we make to make this transition towards a cleaner energy technology. That's a really challenging conversation to have because unfortunately, those industries are located in communities where people of color live and making that transition away from those technologies will take time, but it's time that those communities no longer have because they've already been suffering the most from the emissions of those industries. What types of challenges have you run into trying to achieve these goals? What types of policies are you trying to set in place to address some of these challenges? These days in California, the folks who are in charge of making a lot of decisions around climate policy and energy policy in California are very familiar with what equity means and why it's important and why it's something that needs to have more consideration. But it wasn't the case too long ago. And I think that in places outside of California, that is still very much a challenge. Right now, with the federal government introducing the Justice 40 initiative, environmental justice is something that we have to think about as we're fighting climate change. As you're seeing more and more climate action in other states that are bringing the voice of underrepresented communities to the forefront, that's changing, but it's not all the way there everywhere. Once you start having a serious conversation about energy equity, it has to change the whole conversation about everything else. There's no way that you can achieve energy equity without changing the practices of what it means to run energy policy. Energy equity as a commitment, that's a start. Procedural equity needs to be looked at. Distributional equity needs to be looked at. Analytical equity needs to be looked at. And these practices that we're just not that familiar with. Equity and energy equity requires more intentionality around how we do things. And sometimes that's translated into slowing down and taking longer, which anybody that you talk to about climate change, we need to speed up. We don't need to slow down. But we have to do it very intentionally and thoughtfully because if we don't, we might replicate or exacerbate some inequities in how we do this work. It's gonna take more intention, but it doesn't have to take longer. We can still keep up a robust timeline. We just have to be more intentional about how we do things, which translates into sometimes we just need more resources to do this work and bring equity. We want energy equity to include the voices of those that are least represented. In order to achieve that, those voices need to be given the resources to be able to participate genuinely in this conversation. And because they're starting from further behind, sometimes they need resources to just catch up and sustain their participation long-term. That's an equation that sometimes is not factored into budgets or the way that we're thinking about how to implement energy policy. And we have to, because if we don't have the resources available to get those partners involved, then we're asking them to take on a lot of work that they don't have the background and technical expertise to take on and that they're not resourced to do. It impacts your budget. Another aspect is that I don't believe we're doing a full-scale accounting on how we make decisions about what we prioritize in terms of action and in terms of priorities. In the energy space, We end up focusing a lot on GHG reductions. We focus a lot on reliability. We focus a lot 
on air quality improvement, but we need to look at other criteria to make some of those decisions to ensure that equity is actually something that's fully considered. What are some potential health benefits from pursuing a more equity-centered approach versus something that's more straightforward and not and doesn't include equity? What are some of the societal benefits of actually having a conversation around equity that's more intersectional and more holistic versus just approving a set of technology that's going to reduce greenhouse gases. Some of this accounting, I feel like you see it starting to emerge in capturing the social cost of carbon. But I think we need more of those practices to have a full picture around some of these really big decisions with a lot of implications and how we can address multiple issues at the same time with these strategies that we're advancing. Some of the policies that we are advancing to try to address these things are really focusing in on when we're making a transition and it's going to require resources, who is principally providing those resources and ensuring that it's a progressive way to address these issues, not a regressive way to address these issues, ensuring that equity practices are embedded in the way that policies are being developed and implemented, and making sure that we are trying to be as multi-sectoral as possible in our approach so that we can address multiple issues that communities are facing. Sometimes it, it makes it feel as though we are overcomplicating things. We have to overcomplicate things because our communities are facing multiple challenges at the same time. We have a great opportunity to address many of them through the way that we do energy policy and climate policy. What are your thoughts on the climate and economic justice screening tool, uh, you know, the tool that's coming out of the federal government's Justice 40 initiative and is designed to make sure that disadvantaged communities receive the benefits of these federal investments? I'm really excited about the fact that we're doing this at a national level. It means a lot that the federal government is actively working on a, a tool that's able to identify communities that just need more attention on the climate crisis across the country. It goes way back to the beginning of environmental justice. People want to live well. They don't want to live near polluting facilities. They still want to live in thriving places just without the pollution and the negative externalities of those industries. That dialogue and that conversations have been with us for a really long time. They were just not being listened to. And I hate that it takes federal action like this to give credence to what communities have been saying for a long time, but it really does do that. Now, moving forward, advocates in North Carolina or Illinois or New Mexico will have a federally approved tool to be able to say what we have been saying for many places, probably decades, is in fact happening. Our community is way more polluted than others, and we are at more risk because of our demographic makeup. It's a big deal that this is something that the federal government is taking on. The tool itself is going through its process of improving. We've submitted comments on the things that it could improve on. Number one is that race should absolutely be something that the tool is able to say something meaningful about. We understand what the White House is saying about whether or not race can be included as a criteria because it opens it up to potential litigation, et cetera. 
whatever they decide to do, there are ways to include information about race in the tool itself that will be very beneficial to everyone in the country and making sure that we understand what happens to the information that we're collecting when race is a factor. California does that. California has Prop 209, which does not allow the state to make certain decisions based on race being a criteria. That said, Calvin Viral Screen still allows you to, to take a look at race and how it intersects with the other criteria that it's collecting. It gives us really valuable information. So that's one thing that I would love the national tool to do. In addition to that, it's everything else that it means for this tool to be in development. It means that the White House acknowledged that this is something that needs to be worked on. It means that we are in the process of giving a tool to local communities to be able to see what kinds of impacts are being exposed to. And with the Justice 40 initiative, it means that it leads towards action that the federal agencies will now have to use this tool to be able to make decisions about how to prioritize these communities for taking action. I think it's a big deal. And it's the beginning. Once we start using this in implementation and we start seeing how different communities are using the tool and how different agencies are using the tool, it'll be an iterative process and one that hopefully will mean more meaningful action, but it's a good start. How do you see these tools making an impact at the state and local levels? The applications of these tools go beyond just what the federal government may use them for. Advocates can use them to make decisions about what kind of work they want to lead. Local jurisdictions can use them to advise or guide local action on climate issues. Private sector can take a look at these tools and figure out where might be a good place to deploy some other clean energy technology, given the kinds of impacts that local communities are facing around climate issues. I'm really excited to have this tool at a national level and to push the envelope on what's possible when it comes to taking concrete climate action. Can you speak to Greenlining's work around energy efficiency for communities of color? These have been core to how Greenlining has advanced our climate work. Energy efficiency, this activity that has so many benefits and requires so much more attention because of the benefits that it produces, not only for our fight against climate change, but also for individuals that live in houses or buildings currently that could have better quality of life for the people that live in them through energy efficiency upgrades. We have long advocated for the state to make investments in energy efficiency, for investor-owned utilities to make investments in energy efficiency, and to really try to take on this opportunity to improve the quality of buildings and houses through these resources and ensure that the economic benefits associated with that, whether it's workforce development or contracting opportunities, are made available to folks that could potentially use the benefit of those contracts or jobs. We see this more and more as we're having to confront the realities of increased air pollution due to wildfires, extreme heat in different communities, and even things like drought. How do we improve the efficiency of our buildings can help us address those issues as well. We have to kind of look at what counts as energy efficiency. People today think it's a luxury to have air conditioning for some places, it's an absolute necessity because of where they live and because of the exposure to extreme heat. And as we're seeing extreme heat increase in California and other places in the country, I think we'll have to 
think about energy efficiency. It's not just a quality of life issue. It's a life and death issue for some people. Figuring out how do we expand the definition of energy efficiency to include some of these other components will be really important. How is the Green Lining Institute working to increase energy resilience for these communities? On the issue of resilience, it really has to be focused on people and the resilience of people to climate impacts. For the last couple of years, we've been doing a good amount of work on a variety of different resilience activities. Number one, similar to climate mitigation, climate resilience is just going to require a great amount of investment. The state of California has been advancing bond conversations for climate adaptation and resilience. We have a historic budget surplus over the last two years. Last year was a historic budget surplus. This year is an even bigger budget surplus. So we've been really involved to try to direct resources that the state has available to resilience strategies and making sure that we don't miss out on this opportunity to build the resilience of people. We've also been working on policies that elevate resilience as a priority for the state and focus those efforts on people. One of those things is we are working with the state of California to develop a mapping platform that would essentially identify the communities in the state that are most prone to different climate impacts based on their geography and their socioeconomic makeup. It'll allow us to make decisions about where to prioritize action based on the kind of climate impact that the community is facing. This is like Cal Stream, but instead of looking at climate mitigation, it looks at climate adaptation and resilience, and they're meant to be used complementary. And it'll give us just more information about where should we prioritize action. Another thing that we're doing on the climate resilience side, extreme heat is unfortunately a deadly event. But it's not seen as that by many people because people just think, well, it's just really hot today, when in fact, it's an event. There's a proposal to categorize extreme heat waves the way that you would categorize a hurricane and name it to hopefully elevate just how severe this is. We're really excited about that because it will give the event the prominence that it needs in order for people to really take shelter. We are currently asking the state of California to invest $1 billion in the development of climate resilience hubs that would be physically located in impacted communities so that in the case of a climate event, people have a location to go to that's in their community and program with things that would allow those people that attend those centers to be able to really see it as a resource and as a refuge for any kind of climate-related event. What we see is that a lot of the resilience centers and evacuation centers end up being far away from where people live, usually at fairgrounds. While we agree there's a reason for those to be there, we also need places like this within communities, whether it's at a library or a community center or a school that is resourced with the kinds of investment that will make them resilient, like solar or backup energy through electric school buses or those kinds of upgrades to make those places resilient in the case of this event. Those are just some of the strategies that we're following with climate adaptation resilience. Would classifying extreme heat as an emergency event, does that open up additional funding sources through FEMA potentially? Yes, I believe it does. The communication aspect of classifying this event will be helpful 
but then also I think the additional resources that may be leveraged through having something be an emergency response also opens up some opportunities there. Can you speak to what the Climate Resilience Hub would look like? Are these more micro communities and smaller, but more numerous resilience hubs? The scale of them would vary from community to community. Our vision for this is a really from the ground up style of resilience center, something that's embedded in community, informed by community about what kind of center best meet the needs of those communities and appropriately designed to be able to achieve those goals. We do envision having a program that's able to resource a lot of community resilience centers, community resilience hubs, and it would probably work more at like the neighborhood city scale level. We would imagine that in the future, you would have not just one of them per city, but you may have several of them per city. As we are seeing the changing environment, resilience is really the name of the game. While we continue to press on reducing emissions and making sure that we mitigate the worst of climate change, some of that is already here. We just need more resources to be able to build the resilience of our communities and our people. The time for action on this front is now. We really need to kind of start getting ready for more extreme weather events everywhere. And I can imagine the community having to need some of these. We're starting to do some emerging work on the relationship between transportation and resilience. And what we're seeing is that a lot of transit-dependent people have a really difficult time being able to get to evacuation centers or just leaving their community because of a lack of adequate transit. If you have a center that you might be able to walk to or it's more accessible to you, it serves your needs better than having just one center that's out in a fairground that you need some form of transportation to get to, but unfortunately you don't have it. Over the next five years, what is the Green Lining Institute looking to prioritize to address these types of challenges, specifically for communities of color? California is taking aggressive action on climate issues, and there's a lot of implementation work that we need to focus in on. What is working when it comes to taking an equity approach to our implementation that we can then replicate and scale and maybe share with other places? So on building electrification, on vehicle electrification, on resilience, on energy decarbonization, there's a lot of things that we need to work on to make sure that we are actually making the progress that we wanted to see through the policies that California has passed. We need to implement a lot. And implementation also means working with local stakeholders. We need to figure out what allows those communities that have the appetite to pursue an equity strategy to having that actually lead to good results. One of the biggest issues that we're seeing is the lack of capacity and technical know-how in many communities to be able to take advantage of these policies. In California, not to mention other parts of the country, we also need to learn how do we set communities up for success with the opportunities that are being made available through policies in the state and also now federal policies that are taking action on climate. There's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to policy making. Everybody wants to increase our timeline towards phasing out of fossil fuels and making sure that we are transitioning towards a clean energy future. We agree with that. We want to get there as quickly as we can. And 
at the same time needing to deploy the necessary available renewable energy resources that will allow us to make that transition and not have an impact on our energy reliability will be really important. And also ensuring that as we make that transition, it's not such an expensive transition that the least resourced people in California are paying way more for making the transition. All of that is going to be really complicated and really difficult to analyze and figure out what's best to do. But that's where we're at right now. We need to speed up our timeline. We need to put on more renewable energy on the grid and ensure that folks are able to afford that transition. And that's going to be a good amount of work in the future. Alvaro, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through those with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about work. And these are absolutely possible and important. Remember that reducing your energy use today means securing a safer, more affordable and sustainable tomorrow. For more information on energy efficiency opportunities that can help you save energy and money, visit SoCalREN.org or call 877-785-2237.